1: Coindesk is calling on visionaries in the digital economy to present at our newest event, Ideas, investing in digital assets and enterprises summit. Ideas is the place for you to present your marketing opportunity in front of leading investors poised to help you get your idea off the ground. Apply today to become a presenter at Ideas 2022 by Coindesk. Visit coindesk.com forward slash ideas for more information. This episode is sponsored by Circle and Near.
2: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast, as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, you're Sheila Warren.
0: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Recent activity around the world these past few months has shown a spotlight on regulation of the crypto industry. Countries, including the G20, have issued and are issuing guidance on everything from broad crypto frameworks to tax to stable coins. With the passage of the landmark Mika proposal in Europe, multiple bills dropping in the US, and action elsewhere around the world, regulation is more clear than it was a year ago, but that bar remains pretty low. Many people in the industry are now accustomed to the idea that officially enforceable rules that hold people and the services they provide to account might actually help crypto as it evolves. This is in part a natural response to the fear of widespread contagion from acts of a select few across the wider crypto ecosystem. Now in the past, regulators have looked at the massive web of regulations that entangle the legacy financial sector. But most in crypto argue that these same rules aren't really applicable to crypto or DeFi and certainly not without adjustment. The goal is to enable fundamentally new products that don't just replicate the old system, which we know has left people out and behind over the course of its evolution. But doing something new requires reimagining decades worth of mental frameworks and the structures that have come about with years of regulation and policymaking. As the industry matures and seeks more clarity, crypto is raising some big questions about the way our financial sector has been regulated thus far and how it should be regulated moving forward. For example, who has or should have regulatory authority over which assets and why? Should regulators impose stricter constraints on crypto's centralized finance sector, (Cfi) as it's known, but allow DeFi projects to follow a more self-regulatory model? How do we appropriately assess risk in new systems that are still being developed? Does the model of same risk, same regulation even make any sense? And is tech neutrality the ultimate goal or do we need specific frameworks that account for crypto being fundamentally different? I am really looking forward to having this conversation with two of my favorite legal mavens, Zahi Masari and Alexandra Viraj. Zayi is co-founder and chief legal officer of LightSpark, a company exploring, building, and extending the capabilities and utility of Bitcoin. Before that, she was a partner in the financial institutions group at the law firm, Davis Polk. Alex is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine. Prior to that, she had a long career at the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Since my co-host Michael Casey is away this week, we'll move right ahead with our guests. Welcome, Zai and Alex. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much, Sheila. I'm so excited about this conversation. I can't even tell you. I've been looking forward to it just for days. And in part, because I think there's so much misunderstanding within the crypto ecosystem by actors of of what, what is the regulatory web in which we find ourselves. Alex, why don't we start with you just to kind of give us like a framing of like how did we get where we are in this alphabet soup of agencies that govern banking and financial system today in the US?
3: Sure. Thanks, Sheila. And thanks so much for inviting me on this uh, podcast. I've listened to it many times. I'm honored to be here with you and with my friend IE. So let's start really high level. Uh, who regulates anyone and why do they do that? And if you look at our banking framework as an example, It's activities driven, it's based on the idea that our institutions are engaging in bank activity like payments or taking deposits or lending and it also depends on how these institutions or these entities are chartered or how they're organized. So for example, if you're dealing with a Fed member bank then you're regulated by the Federal Reserve. If you offer deposit insurance, you're regulated by the FDIC. If you're a national trust or a national bank, you're regulated by the OCC. And so by its very nature, our system is fragmented and overlapping, which is not always a bad thing. And then we have this additional layer of agencies that were started as a result of, you know, financial crises like the SEC back in the late 20s, early 30s. And so it's kind of a hodgepodge in terms of how we got this alphabet soup. But effectively, it is the framework that us uh, that we U.S. lawyers work within this regulatory maze. And um, so that's just a little bit of a, a high level. Kind of insight into the framework. So once you understand this framework, Sheila, then you, you need to ask the question: What's the focus for crypto purposes? What are regulators focused on? And really, they're focused on the digital asset or the token. And that's where I think Zai can contribute in terms of her knowledge of the SEC and the CFTC and how those regulatory agencies work.
0: Yeah, the web is yeah. even bigger, right? Because we have the federal system, and then we also have state systems. So maybe you can talk a bit about that as well.
4: Sure. It's a it's a great point. And I think the way to think about the starting place for financial regulation, including for crypto regulation, is that regulators have tended to look first at the asset being traded or being dealt in. So they look at securities and subject securities to securities regulation. Banking products are subject to banking regulation. And then money products, generally speaking, can be subject to banking regulation or can be subject to state by state regulation under money transmission laws. And I think what's happened with cryptocurrencies is we've been engaged in this ongoing discussion for the past nine years, eight or nine years about what is the fundamental characteristic of the asset being traded? Is it a security? Is it money? Is it a kind of banking product? and regulators have been really really struggling with this question because the answer to that question determines how the asset is regulated maybe an asset is none of those things and it's just a commodity and not really subject to federal regulation at all and so i think this has been the focus of the regulatory discussion and it sort of plays in to the most confusing part of us financial regulation which is the overlapping jurisdiction of various federal regulatory agencies when there isn't a clear answer about what an asset is based on existing law.
5: Join us for Converge 22, Circle's first annual conference on the blockchain-driven future of money, coming this September to San Francisco. Converge 22 is a gathering for what's next in Web3 featuring demos and developer workshops, plus guest speakers like our very own Money Reimagined co-host, Sheila Warren, Aves' Stanikulikov, Compound's Robert Leshner, and Solana's Anatoly Yakovenko. Money Reimagined listeners get a special discount with the code COINDESK. Register today at converge.circle.com. Near is a revolutionary, yet simple, Web3 platform for building decentralized apps. Designed by developers for developers, over 700 projects are now building on Near's fast, secure, and scalable protocol. Whether you're a crypto native launching DeFi apps, NFT marketplaces, and play-to-earn games, or looking to migrate your project from Web2, Near makes it easy to build Web3 for the masses. Near offers developers a variety of tools, resources, and support for building apps, empowering communities, and creating a more fair, inclusive, and equitable future. Start your Web3 developer journey now by visiting near at near.org. That's N-E-A-R dot
1: So what do
0: all these, this alphabet soup, what does this mean, right? Because you look at a country like Singapore, for example, you've got kind of monetary authority. They govern all these different things. There's like an OCC component, FDIC component. So if you just walk us through these different agencies, what they actually do, like what is the OCC? What is the FDIC? Like what is their responsibility? And I think also, as you said, Zai, you know, banks are, are different and special in this country, right? They're viewed quite differently. Each activity kind of has permission and needs to be granted, so you can talk a bit
3: about that as well. Since we just talked about the CFTC and the SEC, let me provide some very high level mandates for those agencies to kind of compare and contrast. So the CFTC regulates derivatives markets, right, and those are the kinds of assets that that don't involve promise to pay or a claim on the way a business is run or how profitable it is. And so it regulates things like futures contracts or forward contracts or things like that. The policy choice there is because of the nature of the asset. It doesn't have like a, a disclosure framework, right? A, a framework by which uh, investors can understand the product that they might be buying or selling or trading. And so contrast that to the SEC's traditional mandate, which is, you know, regulating stocks and bonds and, you know, exchanges, that trade in those things, where where there definitely is more of an investor and a customer interface, and where there is a very well-evolved disclosure framework around those different types of, you know, assets. And so the SEC has gotten involved in crypto, well, in a number of ways, one of which is taking actions against crypto firms because the SEC is taking the position that some tokens are securities. And, you know, the CFTC has gotten involved because there have been certain exchanges that have an active futures market in Bitcoin and ether, right? And so this, this constant tug of war or this challenge around who regulates what largely derives from, from those examples. I'm gonna give it to Zai to talk about the federal banking agencies and, and their mandates.
4: Yeah, sounds good. So we have a lot of banking regulators. We've got three federal regulators that oversee different parts of our banking system. We've got the Federal Reserve, which regulates banking organizations as a whole. We've got the OCC, the Office of the Control of the Currency, terrific name. That agency oversees nationally chartered banks. And we've got the FDIC, which Alex knows better than I do is the Deposit Insurer and Resolution Authority, and also regulates some state banks. Then if that wasn't enough, uh, we've also got 50 state banking regulators that charter banks. Those state chartered banks may also be subject to FDIC regulation and may also be subject to Federal Reserve oversight as part of banking organizations with holding company parent companies. So that's sort of the broad landscape of banking regulators, and if you think that there's a clear separation in all instances between the jurisdictions of the banking regulators and the two market regulators, the SEC and CFTC, you would sadly be mistaken. For example, the banking regulators regulate some swap activities, that is over-the-counter derivatives activities of swap dealers registered with the SEC. The Federal Reserve has general oversight authority of securities broker-dealers that are part of banking organizations, and so on and so forth. So there is a lot of overlap. And and we won't even mention the CFPB uh, and the FTC, which also have some jurisdiction over financial activities conducted by firms operating in the United States. And then, of course, we'd be remiss to not mention the state money transmission regulators,
0: which have taken the lead in regulating a lot of crypto activities in the United States. I want to pause there for one second, because I think what a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, the largest banks are subject to kind of all of this regulatory authority, but it's activity based. So some banks engage with some agencies and are overseen by them and not others and whatnot. To some extent, it's a choice of the activity that bank is engaging in. And so Part of what, has, what happened in kind of the earlier days and continues today in crypto is this idea that, well, if we're engaging in a similar activity or the same activity, then perhaps the agency that has oversight activity for a bank ought to have oversight activity for a crypto entity, whatever that entity is, leaving aside the question of whether or not that entity is or is not a bank, right? So, it isn't, so what I find interesting is how do you define a bank? Well, you can't define a bank by who regulates it because different regulators engage different activity, right? So even that fundamental question around is a, any crypto entity a bank or not a bank is not straightforward. And I find that so fascinating when you get under the hood, because you would think the regulatory perimeter is what would define and pull something into that or not. But that's actually not the case. I just love to get your comments on that. Because I just it, it blew my mind when I finally really, when that penny dropped, and I really understood that.
3: Yeah, no, it blows my mind every day, actually, because you have (laughs) crypto firms outside the bank regulatory perimeter, to use your phrase, that are doing a lot of bank-like activities, but not being regulated at all. Or I shouldn't say at all, they're regulated at the state level, but they're not regulated at the federal level like banks, right? And so you have this sort of two system that's working in parallel, and maybe it's not an even playing field. And I think that's that's a real struggle for regulators. It's certainly a struggle for, for people in Congress trying to regulate. But I think the broader point is, you know, from a regulatory perspective, you know, we had a stablecoin report last year that was the alphabet suit of the bank banking regulators, as well as the market regulators, as well as Treasury, right? All come together and identify risks, and note that you know a lot of crypto or stablecoin players are outside that perimeter. So the, the real challenge is. How do you address the fact that all of this activity is outside the system, but doing a lot of the same kinds of activities as entities that are having you know, capital requirements, liquidity requirements, examination, oversight, and all the rest? If I could jump in to build on what
4: Alex said. Despite calls internationally and sometimes within the United States for the idea of regulating Um, activities that raise the same risks the same way, this is not the system that we have in the United States. Many different types of entities engage in similar activities, but are regulated differently for those activities. I think to your question, Sheila, what makes something a bank? The sort of silly superficial answer is that only banks can take deposits. And if you're taking deposits, as a business, then you are a bank and need to be subject to bank registration, licensing, oversight, supervision. Uh, But of course, as is the case with everything in the law, it's not always clear what it means to take a deposit, right? Short-term lending through issuing commercial paper looks a little bit like taking a deposit, but we don't regulate entities that issue commercial paper or short-term debt as banks. Money market funds can look a little bit like very boring banks, but we don't regulate them as deposit-taking institutions either. Why is that? It's a matter of path dependency and history and economic purpose of those entities. And so I think you have seen in the past couple of years, some crypto institutions actually seeking to be regulated as banks so that they can have the same kinds of authorities that banks have to take deposits. But we just haven't gotten there yet because the federal regulators, the federal banking regulators, as well as the market regulators have not welcomed crypto firms into the federal regulatory perimeter
0: yet. Well, and not just that, but what, you know, on my mind part two, if you will, is that federal regulators by and large, or maybe completely have not permitted federally regulated entities to participate In crypto meaningfully right i don't think there are exceptions to that at least i'm not aware of them so they aren't you know banks sec broker dealers like some of this stuff i mean what that's really interesting
4: i think this is one of the most important points that we can make about sort of the current state of u.s regulation of crypto it is not the case that federal regulators haven't thought about regulating crypto I think it is instead the case that federal regulators have looked at crypto and have actively pushed crypto activities outside of the perimeter of federal regulation. And not because crypto firms always want that result. There have been an increasing number of crypto firms that have sought to be within the regulatory perimeter. At the same time, there are banking institutions, sort of traditional banks that have sought to engage In cryptocurrency activities but have not been permitted to do so. To my mind, this is actually a really bad result for two reasons. One, um, it deprives consumers of choice in terms of where they get their crypto services from. I'm sure there are many consumers who would be delighted to hold Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies alongside their bank account held in custody with traditional banks. They have not been able to do so. At the same time, crypto firms haven't been able to get for sure the burdens, but also the benefits of having a federal regulatory regime that applies to them and within which they
0: operate. I think this is a bad result for the US. Alex, I'd love to hear you know, your thoughts on what are those burdens and benefits to being within that perimeter? And then I want to shift us to talking about since by and large we're not within that perimeter, we're within the state governance system, right? Regulatory system. So, what is that? But let's start with some of those burdens and benefits of of why might a crypto entity, just using the term generically, want to be within that perimeter and why might not want to be within that perimeter?
3: So a crypto entity might want to be in the perimeter for legitimacy and scaling reasons. There's a lot with, with the lack of regulation comes a lack of certainty. So if you know the rules of the road, you can incorporate those into your business models and scale and do things the way that your regulator or regulators tell you to do them. And I agree with Zai that, that the trust factor is a real one that you're, you wanna be able to scale in ways that, that allow you to kind of leave the DeFi ecosystem and be more in the consumer payments and retail payments ecosystem. And that will come with regulation and clarity. I think some of the, some of the trade-offs, however, is if regulation is not developed in a thoughtful and sound way, You might find that the economic models of these crypto firms are either completely unraveled or no longer make sense. And so I think one of the challenges for regulators and one of the sort of the gut instincts of a lot of regulators is to take crypto and to compare it to something they already know, like it's a money market fund, or actually it's more like a demand deposit. When in reality, it's got interesting bits of both of those things, but it's neither one of those things exclusively. And so until we get to the point where we're really teasing out meaningful characteristics for something that is new, but presents many of the traditional risks we know, we're not going to get sound regulation that helps crypto firms, that potentially helps banks, and that ultimately protects consumers. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, like, there's so much more I could talk about with there, but I want to shift to state a little bit, right? Because
0: one of the big challenges, of course, is that there's hardly uniformity among the ways that state. Approach this, and maybe we can start with kind of the MTL uh, money transmitter license and, and how that you know has been such a big uh, force within the crypto ecosystem. So maybe Alex will turn to you to kind of talk about that a little bit.
3: Yeah. So let, let me start super high level. The states have been the real pioneers in crypto. In part, that's because they were the first movers, and in part, that's because the federal government, in, in my view, has been largely stymied in terms of you know moving forward or even Congress regulating. So so if the states are the pioneers, that means that they've done a lot of iteration on different kinds of licensing for digital assets, whether it's a bit license or it's a unique kind of charter like the speedy charter from Wyoming. And um, and that presents potentially some advantages for crypto firms who, who don't feel like they can wait. They want to start building now. The sort of trade-off, however, is that with state-by-state regulation, you don't have the uniformity that a federal oversight uh, Really brings, right? So that everyone truly is subject to the same disclosure standards or the same reserve standards, et cetera. And so you, you have some entities that are set up as, as trusts under New York law. You have others that have different formations. And so you have a system where there really is, it sort of depends on how you're formed and where you're regulated. And of course, many of these crypto firms are regulated by many states, not just one. So there's a lot of trickiness there, perhaps. Zai? Yes.
4: I 100% agree with Alex. The states have been at the forefront of regulating crypto for as long as crypto has existed. You've got 49 state money transmitters that can regulate the activity, some of which do. You've got New York with the Bit License, and you've got some states developing novel charters, which, uh, as Alex mentioned, include Wyoming, which I think show that crypto can and should be regulated. I think what we're facing at the moment, however, are some significant gaps in how crypto activities are regulated, including under state laws. So I will give you just one example. These state money transmission laws in particular were developed to regulate payments activities. So Western Union and later PayPal, ways for people to send money to each other. They were not designed to regulate activities like order book trading on crypto exchanges. Those are activities that raise quite different risks and um, different consumer protection requirements and different regulatory considerations than money transmission, which is what those state laws were largely meant to address. And I think we're seeing some of the strains under state money transmission laws from the very different types of crypto activity, whether it's exchange trading, crypto prime brokerage, lending, all of these other activities that tend to look more like diversified financial services and less like payments. And I think that is why we're seeing increased regulatory scrutiny and regulatory activity at the federal level, trying to figure out how crypto activities that don't look like payments activities should be regulated.
0: So given all of this, right, does the same risk, same regulation kind of mantra that's been percolating a little bit in crypto circles, does that actually make any sense? So I think it um, makes
4: a lot of sense. I just don't know if it's possible under the U.S. system because we don't regulate financial services this way. We have an almost entirely entity-based regulatory system. You know, once an entity is an SEC registered broker-dealer, it's regulated as a broker-dealer. You know, that broker-dealer might engage in money transmission activities as well, but it's not regulated as a money transmitter. I just think we are in the United States so far down the entity regulation path that
3: it's hard for me to imagine an overhaul of that approach just for crypto. I agree with that. I like the elegance of the principle because it's fairly easy for most people to understand, but I think it loses sort of the regulatory nuance that, that Zai explained. And it's also difficult to decide like what is the same. Yeah. So I think that there's some challenges there, but I still think it's an important principle if you're trying to gain consensus from a broad number of people.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit. Okay, let's, let's maybe shift a little bit here because, you know, Zai, Alex, I think you both noted there are some entities that are, I don't know if eager is the right word, but certainly willing, you know, to be regulated as banks or analogous to banks. The fact that we are certainly not monolithic as an industry. You've got centralized exchanges, you've got DeFi, you know. So how do you kind of make sense of this universe? And maybe I'll just kind of start with maybe a, an easier frame. Like, Do you think that DeFi should be treated differently from CeFi? Like, how would you distinguish that in the context of U.S. banking regulations, whether federally
3: or the state level?
0: Whoever wants to go first. (laughs)
3: I'll go first. I would say that this this dichotomy between DeFi and CeFi conceptually makes sense to me. But I would also say that with a lot of DeFi activity, that the idea that is truly decentralized is, is a challenging one for me. We saw that with Tornino Cash, where you had regulators come in and Either sanction code or arrest the, the, the builders or the coders. So, like I sort of answer this question with that assumption in mind. But you know, if you could delineate the difference, I would say you know the way you regulate them is not one is more stringent than another necessarily. It just means that for DeFi, which in my mind presents some really unique challenges, right? Because who's accountable, right? Who is the governments care about enforcement, trust, and accountability? So right away with a decentralized framework, who is it, what is it, and how do you do it? I think that the approach there first ought to be one that is tailored to really focusing on the illicit actors of that system. And without more thought about how to address the illicit actors of the DeFi system, I think you risk so much. I think you potentially risk illicit activities, being illicit users being able to use DeFi for their own private financial transactions. And you potentially have a a chilling impact on on builders if you go after them as well. I don't think it should be completely deregulated.
4: I think we are making this far too hard on ourselves. My instinct is that we could think about this a lot more simply and accomplish a lot more. So let me explain what I mean. We have in the past encountered many instances of regulators considering whether to regulate technology. I think market regulation of trading algorithms is one example. The CFTC has grappled with this issue in its proposal of regulation AT, automated trading. And time and time again, the regulators have tended to conclude that regulating code itself is not fruitful. And I think it's because it's really hard to regulate code itself. Instead, we regulate financial services in particular we regulate financial services offered to retail customers. So if you take a big step back and take that framing to how we should think about DeFi, I think you can make a really clear case that just like in other contexts and setting aside the AML and other financial crimes considerations, which are a separate challenging topic, we could think about regulation of DeFi the same way that we have long thought about regulation of other financial services. Don't regulate the code. Don't regulate the developers of the code themselves as financial services market participants. Instead, you can regulate in a right-sized way those who are offering access to those services and charging fees, uh, particularly when they're offering access to retail customers. Then you start to get to questions of how to regulate them. But once you've sort of set that as a baseline, regulate firms who are offering services to retail customers first, you probably capture 90% of the consumer protection goals that regulators would have in mind. You can require disclosures about how the protocols work. You can require information about fees and conflicts of interest, just like we do for other types of intermediaries. And to me, that would be a more simple, frankly, effective way to regulate, at least to begin the regulation of activities that look exactly like other types of financial services activities without having to make big policy decisions that could be very detrimental about regulating code. So Zai, I I agree
3: with you. Are in your example, are those the DeFi front ends, like the websites and the apps? Yeah. And look, a lot of those aren't custody and customer assets, right? And so you shouldn't
4: regulate them in a way that you would an entity that's holding customer assets like a CFI crypto exchange. The regulation can be right-sized and different, but a lot of those front ends can raise some of the same consumer protection concerns that other non-custodial financial services providers raise. And I think it may be appropriate to think about regulation of those types of companies in the
0: same way. So here's a question for both of you. You know, I certainly laud consumer protection as a legitimate public policy goal. Like I don't, I don't think anybody is interested in seeing the stereotypical grandma lose the house, right. Because they invested in the wrong thing or because they engaged in the wrong project or, you know, whatever it might be. But I also think we have to acknowledge that consumer protection has been used a bit uh, in this country, in the United States as a way of engendering exclusion within systems too, right? Like we prohibit people who are not, as I call it, pre-wealthy from engaging in certain kinds of investment activity, right? We have turned an eye to some extent, less so now, but certainly historically to redlining practices or others, because we allowed the agencies engaging those activities to self-assess their own risk and say, oh, that community or that neighborhood or that individual is no too risky for our portfolio. And therefore we have the right to exclude them from our basic services or whatever it is, right? There is this movement, I don't know if movement's the right word, there is certainly uh, interest in the idea of a self regulatory model around some of this, particularly in the kind of the DeFi space. And I'm curious how you feel, A, your response to kind of the consumer protection being used a bit as a bit of a, a being weaponized in some cases, right, against certain communities and providing this uh, justification in some cases for exclusion, categorical exclusion of those uh, communities or, or individuals. But then also this idea that the industry, would not engender bias if it were able to kind of self-regulate. I just want to talk about equity as a general frame. So either of you would love to hear your
3: thoughts on that. (laughs) Uh, Such a a great question. So I think to the extent that consumer protection is being weaponized to exclude members of our population, I I just instinctively have an issue there. I sort of approach it from a different perspective, which is that all consumers should have objective and equal amounts of information about whatever products in crypto they're investing in. I have an issue with exclusion just, I guess, from a conceptual level. The idea of a self-regulating organization for DeFi is an interesting one. I think about the SROs that we have currently and, and ways we might analogize them. And I, I'm honestly a little bit challenged by that. So you think about something like FINRA, right? FINRA is an SRO, basically. It's overseen by the SEC. It's formal. It you know People sign up for it and they agree how they're going to be regulated but again there's a regulatory overlay to that even that sro how would we think about that for defi well building off of Zae's metaphor what if you had a bunch of DeFi front ends come come together and say here are the best practices that we want to volunteer and and come up with and we will self-bind ourselves to these to these principles we might get regulated in the future? We don't know. But in the meantime, doesn't it make sense for us to have a set of principles that we all abide by or something like that? So it might not technically be an SRO, but I think the spirit of an SRO is this sort of almost like volunteerism, but it's also kind of self-regulation and self-lobbying, if you will. I think that there's value in that because there have been examples where different cohorts of financial institutions have done this, And basically, those principles wind up getting enshrined in in regulation, and then they're already doing that. The SRO, I'm sort of taking your question and going a little bit beyond it, but there could be something to that. I like the distinction you're drawing. Look, in the U.S.,
4: our SROs live under statutory authority, whether it's the Securities Exchange Act, whether it's the Commodities Exchange Act. The SROs derive from statutes and, and pull their authority from statutes. We don't have that in crypto, right? I think what we're really talking about then are standard setting bonds. And those have existed for a long time within the financial services realm and outside the financial services realm. And I think to Alex's point, they can be very powerful. They can be powerful signaling mechanisms. They can also be powerful um, in shaping future regulation. And I agree with Alex. I think it's a good idea for crypto market participants to think about whether a standard setting body that issues meaningful standards about how cryptocurrency market participants and service providers will provide their services, you know, whether that will be helpful in the coming years as the regulatory debate continues.
0: It's so interesting. I mean, I personally would want to Really tackle this question of of equity or discrimination or bias within those models, because I mean, I you know I'm not deeply familiar with how Finra operates, and I'm not here to say that there's anything about that that is exclusionary. Nevertheless, I do think you know an SRO itself and, and self-determination there does need to, I think, focus on consumer empowerment and agency as a core tenet. I would think. Uh, I don't know if that's something that's common in the SRO model, and maybe it's actually worthwhile just for our listeners to educate them a little bit about, like, how did SROs come to be? And to your point, like, they are, they do have this regulatory oversight, but, like, what distinguishes a code of conduct from an SRO might be interesting and helpful.
4: Sure. I can say a few words about that if that's helpful. So I'll start backwards by giving examples of the SROs that we do have in the United States. So FINRA is one. It's the SRO... uh, registered and established under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. As an SRO that's recognized by the SEC, FINRA has actual authority to regulate its members as a legal matter. Uh, All the members sign up, sign contracts, and are bound by FINRA rules. And the SEC is able to defer or delegate some of its regulatory authority under the Exchange Act to FINRA. Uh, National Securities Exchanges are also SROs with authority that derives from uh, the Exchange Act. The National Futures Association is the SRO for the CFTC. It derives its authority from the Commodities Exchange Act. These are member organizations where members sign up, pay dues, and are subject to the rules promulgated by the associations. And that's, that is the framework for SROs that we have today. The good thing about SROs is that they're more flexible and can move faster than the regulators. But there's also criticisms of SROs. Sometimes SRO regulation can be burdensome, and sometimes it's not all that fast. I don't think it's a clear answer to the crypto regulation question. I think it might be one tool in that toolbox.
3: I think that it's if so- you are able to build a, a model from scratch, right, not your typical SRO, not your trade group, but something that is inclusive to your questions, Sheila, There, there is room for that. I mean, you can imagine an ad hoc group of standard setting, socially minded builders put together a group and that say, we want a consumer contingent in our group. We want to hear that voice with the right minds and the right creative partnership. I think you could actually accomplish that. And until your question, I hadn't actually thought about it. So thank you for the question. (laughs) You're welcome. Look, there is no mandate in any of the statutes
4: for diversity inclusion, right? Not in the securities laws, not in the commodities laws, not in the banking laws, at least not clearly, right? And so on the one hand, and I'm not setting aside redlining and and other clear cases where it's pretty bad. I think it's a lot to ask a regulatory agency to push a mandate for inclusion without some direction, whether it's from the the statute, from Congress, from something, right? The SEC's mandate is capital formation and investor protection. I think you can argue that inclusion is part of investor protection, maybe part of capital formation, right? But I think that has not been how the agency has viewed it. And without something more, I just don't, you know, I don't know if we, we see a lot of that. So I think there's plenty yeah. of blame to be spread around for the lack of focus on it.
0: I think what's really interesting is to go back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, what sparked the creation of these various federal regulators, and it was a particular financial crisis by and large, right? It was uh, the Great Depression and the crash all the way through to 2008, you know, there was something that came out of that. And that often wasn't about how that affected different communities differently. It was about a general meltdown of the economy, you know, and how there needed to be kind of robustness or safeguards or whatever the terminology at the time, it kind of varied over the, over the course of, of US history. It was was deemed necessary. And so how could you have an agency that could provide some uh, assurance, you know, and authority over, over that kind of thing. And so it wasn't the case that, micro-examination of how were different communities differently affected like we know full well right like there was a i mean there's there's literature about this there's like grapes of wrath right? like not everybody was affected the same way even going back to the great depression it, that affected different parts of population different communities different professions different families very very differently and so i do think you know we're at a time now and one of the promises i've always seen and the potential of crypto is to provide a little bit of leveling, even not a little bit, maybe a lot of kind of leveling and redress for some of the system, some of the inequity that has kind of systematically been baked into our existing systems. And that, you know, to be fair, is proving to be challenging to redress within those institutions. And if we don't provide at least the aperture within which to address some of that, then in my mind, it's kind of like, what are, you know, what are we doing here? You know, what what is kind of the point of of any of this new system if we're not trying to create a more inclusive economy as a general matter digitally? So that's my particular, you know, let's call it bias or frame on things. And what I I take your point Zai, I do think that without kind of the community itself, I I think actually, actually it comes to the SRO frame and the community itself sort of demanding that kind of thing and saying, The openness of these systems is what makes them so compelling, is what makes them so interesting and exciting. It's what gives them so much potential. The fact that we can have this globally connected financial system that doesn't discriminate based on, you know, your country of birth or the assets you have pre-existing within, you know, whatever account, right? All of that is very important to preserve, I think. And the question I think that's challenging is, you know, can we do that effectively within the existing alphabet soup of regulation that we have now, or maybe that is best left to some of the legacy system. And we should think a little bit more creatively in whether it's an SRO model or even just a simple code of conduct about how we might create that world or that vision of the world that I personally feel very invested in seeing come to life. So I don't know if you have any closing thoughts (laughs) maybe around that. And I, again, the tragedy is I do have to close this conversation, but such an incredible treat to get the two of you together on, on the pod. I really, really appreciate it.
4: I love that thought. Whatever standards are built by crypto for crypto do not have to be the same. They can be better. Right? We can do better. And that's a very powerful thought. And that's, that, like, that is the kind of thinking I think the industry can and should embrace. It's fantastic.
0: We're trying, right? A lot of us.
3: <laughs> I would say us. if ultimately our regulatory framework winds up sacrificing inclusion, then we've done it the wrong way. We've lost our way somehow. There, there is this idea that we can do things better. And I, I think that's broadly what, in my mind, a lot of blockchain development represents. The idea that these amazing thinkers, these coders, these protocol developers can show us a radically and potentially better way of doing things. So I also love that idea equally, and I think I will resonate on it uh, on my next run for many miles. So thank you for that. It's a gift to be able to think about that.
0: <laughs> well, thank you both, Alex Baraj, Davis Wright, Zaya Light Spark. It's again, a pleasure and a treat. I trust that our audience has gained so much from this episode. I know I, did. I learned things I didn't even know about these, these crazy systems within which we all operate, whether we know it or not. Uh, thank you to all of you for joining us and stay tuned next week for another episode of Money Reimagined.
1: You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren and guests Alexandra Braj and Zaheem Massari. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adamy e. Levine. Our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments we would love to hear from you, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.
2: Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad.